welcome to Life in the Fasting Lane podcast. Each week, we are here to educate you, challenge you, tell you about keto, talk to you about fasting, mostly intermittent fasting. You can check us out at fastinglane.com and on Twitter and Instagram at Fasting Lane. Our guest this week is Dr. Benjamin Bickman. Benjamin T. Bickman, PhD, is the Associate Professor of Physiology and Developmental Biology at Brigham Young University in Utah. And he said I could call him Ben. So hi, Ben. How's it going? Hey, Eve. Uh, it's going very well. Thank you. What an introduction. Did you like that? Well, oh, all the people I meet typically are, are told to me by Dr. Jason Fung and Megan Ramos. All the cool <laughs> people that know different things, they basically, um, they tell me who to know. And they yeah. said that you were a super smart guy. And I, you know, had live, been living under a rock and hadn't heard of you before, started watching your stuff. Um, I can see all the things that make you really interesting to people but I think you're super, super smart. So I'm excited to have you on the show and see if you can teach us some of this stuff in an everyday kind of language, because that's, that's what I need, man. Yeah, well, hey, but thank you. That's very kind. Uh, let's not confuse smart with curious. I'm just curious. And, and, and the answers I've found happen to be uh, to questions that it appears a lot of people are, are asking. So that's, and a PhD, all that means is someone was really patient. That's it. Mm -hmm. There's no magic to it. And a hard worker. So I'll, I'll well, yeah, a little hard work. So I've been watching a couple of your videos and I've been getting a, a flavor for what you talk about and what you're known for. And I think it seems like the main thing that you are known for is insulin and that you're really trying to break down the barrier in how we think about insulin and that you're an insulin guru. Um, I, I want to know, first of all, how, how did you become an insulin guru? Like, how did you get here? Yeah, yeah. Well, whatever I am, um, it happened through me being curious. So when I was nearing the end of my undergraduate degree, which was uh, exercise physiology, I'd been studying, um, I'd been focusing more and more, including uh, the first half of my master's degree in exercise physiology. I was curious about the muscle. I wanted to know what it was about the muscle, <clears throat> what happened in the cells uh, within the muscle to help the muscle uh, adapt to a stimulus, like exercise, for example. Uh, over time, though, near the end of that master's degree, I stumbled across this work that had been published just a couple years before, detailing how fat cells were endocrine organs. So uh, that was the very first time I'd ever imagined that there would be an organ or a tissue that was acting like an endocrine organ that was not the prototypical endocrine glands. Like when you think of endocrine tissues, you think of the thyroid gland or the adrenal glands or may maybe the gonads. But the fact that fat tissue itself was releasing hormones was mind-blowing to me. And the fact that they were releasing some of these, if we can call them hormones, which are just proteins that flow through the body, some of these were um, inflammatory. So they were activating inflammation throughout the body. And that was thought at the time to be part of the mechanism whereby fat tissue caused insulin resistance. So when I read that, it was this immediate curiosity to want to know more about how fat tissue connects to type 2 diabetes. And that's all, that was the whole scope at the time that was in my mind, I just imagined insulin resistance was only relevant to type 2 diabetes. Insulin's not working very well anymore and the glucose levels climb and then you got diabetes. But <clears throat> so that was the beginning of me 
um, stepping away from the muscle cell, which is something I've not done completely. We still do publish papers from time to time in muscle, including one um, last year looking at how ketones influence muscle cells. But more now, it has been a shift to fat tissue. <clears throat> I once was curious how the muscles respond to exercise. Now I'm curious how the fat tissue responds to environment, to diet, and how that ends up driving insulin resistance in a large way. You know, you, you talk about this, and I remember the first time I heard the term insulin resistance from a doctor to me. It was when I was trying to get pregnant, I think, and they said, uh -huh. you know, you're insulin resistant, you have polycystic ovarian syndrome, yep. and they said, we're going to, you know, let's, let me help you. We're going we're gonna to put you on glucophage. And I, I still look back as I continue to learn more and more, and I really feel frustrated with myself because I'm, I'm a very curious person and, and you heard this not even in regards to yourself and you looked into it, and you got educated. And I don't know why when I was at the doctor 15 years ago and I heard you have insulin resistance, I didn't understand what the heck that meant. I do yeah. to an extent now, but only after two years of Dr. Jason Fung and people like you mm -hmm. and you know, all these people I've talked to, but I feel like the general public, when it re refers to them and they hear insulin resistance, they don't actually know what it means. They just know to take a medication. So yeah. I'm going to ask you two things. Could you, for me, um, very simply, just explain what the heck insulin resistance is and why do you think we, we just solve it with a medication and don't try to figure out the root cause of it? I know that's a giant question, but I, I'd love to hear your opinion. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm a professor, so I like questions. Um, I'm, uh, so, so what is insulin resistance? Uh, I usually define it in, in two ways. One is that the cells of the body are not responding the same. Certain cells of the body are not responding to insulin the way they used to. So there's an alteration in how the cell is responding when insulin comes knocking at the insulin door, the insulin receptor. And then two, and this is important, um, it means uh, insulin resistance is a state of hyperinsulinemia. Now that is distinct, but what that means is insulin is elevated in the blood, in the body, and insulin is not working the right way in all the different parts of the body. Now, some parts of the body continue to respond to insulin just like they always did, which becomes a problem because now they're responding to the excess of insulin. And then in other instances, the cell insulin isn't able to turn off a process or to turn on a process. That's the true insulin resistance at the level, at the level of the cell. So again, two things. It's insulin isn't working the same way that it used to, and there's too much of it in the blood. And that is important uh, to understand. And then why use a medication? <clears throat> I believe that it really is a consequence of medical school education where the average physician, I'm sure would confirm this, their experience with nutrition at medical school could be zero. And even on the generous end, it is maybe a handful of hours. But even if they've had that exposure to nutrition and, and disease, <clears throat> I suspect it would be in the context of the dogmatic thinking that um, it's all about calories in calories out and saturated fats the devil and you need to eat more whole grains that same old nonsense that got us to where we are uh, so I'm almost glad when I can talk to a group of medical practitioners when they haven't had a nutrition class because I have to do less unteaching before I can I don't have to empty the vessel before I can fill it
That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, honestly, the first understanding I ever had of it was Dr. Jason Fung's book, The Obesity Code. And it was suggested to me by a friend who was a doctor because I'd started eating low carb. I'd started eating keto. It's good for your doctor. That's great. I, well, she, she actually, she's just a friend. She's not even my doctor. <clears throat> to be clear. She's not even yeah. my doctor. She's a friend who is a doctor. Um, and I've, most doctors I've been to suggested bariatric surgery and uh, oh. fitness people and, and diets. And those were all the things I did. But um, I, I, I really was amazed uh, when I read Dr. Fung's book and I'm amazed when I hear you talk and I, 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 you know, I can't get over the feeling of like, I, I should have asked sooner. So, so now I get it. Yeah. And, and now I'm, I'm more understanding. And the thing for me is that, can you talk a little bit about how insulin resistance relates to hunger? Because for me, I was always hungry until I did things that, um, lessened my issues with insulin resistance. Yeah. Yeah. So insulin is a satiety hormone. Uh, as much as we always focus on leptin as the satiety signal, that's, that's, um, that doesn't paint the full picture. Uh, insulin and leptin and actually other signals as well um, play into um, satiety as a sort of cocktail. But, but to focus it exclusively on insulin, insulin is a satiety signal. When insulin goes up, it normally will tell the brain, um, we're, energy has come in, we've reached a threshold, we're good. However, that distinct part of the brain, I believe it's a section in the hypothalamus, I think, um, becomes insulin resistant. Uh, we have detected insulin resistance in that distinct section, not my lab, others have. Um, and once it's insulin resistant, it stands to reason that satiety signal that once came from insulin is, now, is no longer coming. So insulin is trying to tell the brain, hey, we're full, stop, but it, it doesn't work. That's for sure. I, I, yeah, yeah, for sure. For like 20 years, I felt hungry all the time. And it's, um, I, I don't think I understood that if I changed the way I ate or how often I ate and made it less frequent that I could feel less hungry. And that seems weird. That's a bit of a paradox, isn't it? Yeah, but no one ever yeah. said that to me. No yeah. doctor, no, no person ever said that to me. And I just want to repeat that for people who feel lost and desperate and ashamed right now. So can you talk any more? You've talked a lot about insulin. Any other major misconceptions that people have about insulin, how our body creates it and processes it? Process oh, yeah. That you find, like what would be the major misconceptions that people have? Yeah, one of the most common um, misconceptions that I hear is when people try to invoke a fear of fat and saturated fat in particular, and they say the saturated fat will come in and clog up your insulin. I don't know what they say. It's something always wrong and silly. Uh, your insulin channels, and then you can't, the body becomes insulin resistant. And that um, that's not true. Um, uh, so, so this is commonly used by uh, people who promote a vegan or a vegetarian diet. You got to avoid these saturated fats and they directly are causing insulin resistance as they clog the cell. That's typically what they'll say, something like that. And the reality is not so simple. First of all, people on a low carb, high fat, even high saturated fat, eating four or five times more saturated fat actually have less saturated, flat, saturated fat flowing through the blood. So the actual amount of saturated fat moving in the bloodstream is less on, on a high fat, low carb diet, even again, even when they're eating several times more saturated fat. So that kind of blows that idea out of the water. And we can unpack that a, a bit more if you'd like. And then, and then second, 
it's not the saturated fat that's the problem. It's what it it's what the saturated fat can become. And in within a cell, if there is the signal um, that's typically caused by an inflammatory event or or activating what we would call inflammatory pathways within a cell, it can take an innocent benign saturated fat and turn it into a type of fat called ceramides. And ceramides now directly antagonize what insulin is trying to do. So insulin comes to the receptor on the cell, knocks on the door, and initiates a series of biochemical events. <clears throat> ceramides block that from happening. So it, ceramides are a type of fat, one of the hundreds of thousands of types of fat, frankly, within every cell. So it's massively complicated area of biochemistry studying lipids. But ceramides directly antagonize the fat. They are derived from saturated fat, um, palmitate in particular, which is the most common saturated fat we eat in the diet. But that, that phenomenon does not mean eating saturated fat causes that event. It, it, it does not. Uh, if uh, everyone has saturated fat in the blood, the liver makes plenty of saturated fat, which could be why the person on a low-fat diet is make, has more saturated fat in their blood because the liver is making so much palmitate. And the strongest signal telling the liver to make new fat is insulin. So I never felt full until I started eating more fat. That, that makes sense, right? Well, I would say it does because as you started shifting your diet to eating less frequently and focusing on the one or two macronutrients that have the least effect on insulin, namely fat and protein, you allowed insulin to finally come down. And with that lowering of insulin, you not only became more sensitive to it, uh, but you also shifted your fuel use. You became metabolically flexible. By that, I mean in the insulin-resistant person, which is the vast majority of adults in the U.S. now, they are stuck in sugar-burning mode all the time. That is metabolic inflexibility. So normally, we're only in sugar-burning mode when we're very physically active and intensity starts to climb. As intensity goes up, sugar-burning goes up, and fat-burning goes down. In contrast, as intensity subsides and we become increasingly sedentary, like two of us right now, we're just talking, we're predominantly getting, we're predominantly fat-burning. And what, that's healthy. Uh, we should be able to shift between these two fuels. That's metabolic flexibility. And again, inflexibility is when we're stuck in sugar burning mode. And the problem with sugar burning is that we have a very finite capacity to store glucose in the body. And when that store starts to get low, when we start to run out of liver glycogen, when that's only about 2000 calories, then the body will sense this and we'll have to eat more and top that glucose reserve, that sugar reserve back up. So we're constantly tapping the fuel tank that's not only really small, but it runs out very quickly. And as someone lowers their insulin, they become more fat adapted. Now they're tapping into the energy reserve that's like this massive tank of fuel that can essentially never run out. And, and, and thus the body doesn't sense any, any fuel um, absence or doesn't feel like the tank is getting on empty. I often use the analogy of a big fuel tank like a semi-truck hauling a fuel tank rumbling down the road. And if you look at that big truck, you'll notice the one fuel tank underneath the cabin and the huge fuel tank on the back. That engine is only pulling fuel from that one little tank. So every several hours, that truck has to pull over and fill that tank back up. But imagine if that truck could sort of shift the fuel lines so that the engine was being fueled by the massive tank on the back 
it's got to haul it around anyway, all that fuel. Now it doesn't need to fill, stop and fill up as frequently. That's like the human body learning to burn its own fat for fuel. We're hauling all this fuel around on our bodies. It's like we have countless little energy bars that are just waiting to be opened up and used, but we can't use them until insulin is down. And to make this point just so obvious, here in Utah, beautiful mountains all over. People love to go hiking, rightly so. And they'll take their energy bars and they'll take their Gatorade. And all I want is water uh, because I have my own energy bars. They're on my body. I got a little fat here that I'm just waiting to use. And why not just tap into that? And so you saying you didn't feel as hungry, I would contend that it's largely or at least partly a consequence of your body learning how to use fat for fuel more readily. You became metabolically flexible. And so if your body is deprived of some glucose for a little while, it doesn't panic. It doesn't sense an energy deficiency because it just says, oh, no problem. I'm a hybrid engine. I'm just going to shift to this other fuel because I got a lot of it just waiting to be used. Yeah. You know, the other thing I noticed too is like most of the time I eat low carb and uh, high healthy fats and I do intermittent fasting. But when I go off track, let's say I go on vacation or I go to a party and I celebrate and maybe I celebrate for two more days after, maybe yeah, my yeah. family or whatever. Let's say I do two or three days of celebration. And I do have some sugar and not a lot of sugar, but more carbs, right? Like that I don't usually eat bread or pizza or whatever. I noticed that I used to gain maybe seven or eight pounds. And this is when I was weighing more. And now I'll only gain two pounds. Is, is that anything to do with that insulin flexibility? You're uh, talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it, it would perhaps partly be that, but that, that um, acute shift in weight um, would almost certainly be due to insulin's ability to tell the body to retain water, which it does exquisitely well. So when someone's noticing that fluctuation, especially over just a couple days of, of debauchery, um, dietary debauchery, uh, it's going to be not a change in fat mass, it's going to be water. Insulin tells the kidneys to retain sodium and water, which is why the weight goes up and which is why blood pressure goes up. That's also it why goes blood- up so much less than it used to. Yeah, well, I, I, it, it probably is because your insulin is just so much better in control. What used to be a spike and it was climbed up into the, I don't know, dozens, 40, 50, 60 microunits. Now for you, it just gets up to 20 or 30 perhaps and just comes down much more quickly. That's interesting. In fact, I'm certain that's the case in, in, in your case. As you become more insulin sensitive, you could eat on what once would have been an amount of carbs to keep your insulin elevated for four to five hours, and now it's up and down in two, and a half, two, two and a half. Because I'm getting better. Because I'm yep. Well, you're better. just more insulin sensitive. So the body yeah. takes that glucose load and it says, all right, uh, I, I only need this much glucose. I only need this much insulin to clear that glucose out. So I'll just spike up my insulin. It'll work. The job is done. In the insulin-resistant person, they take that equal load of glucose, and now the pancreas has to work and work and work, and insulin goes much higher and stays higher for longer just to get that same effect of clearing the glucose out. Dude, when you're obese and you're eating a little bit more and it's so much less than the person, the family member next to you, and then you pack on the weight, it just makes you feel so crappy about yourself oh so i can broken. i can only imagine how discouraging that would be Such really a loser like it, and, it, and and we're dealing with the same all the same hormones and chemicals and it's just it's so frustrating anyway let's talk about something weird you ready uh in a recent video you were talking about the taste of urine as one means early physicians use as they yeah. try to understand more about diabetes number one thank you doctors for sacrificing yeah. Number two, why the hell were they tasting urine and what did they learn from drinking pee? 
Yeah, yeah, that's that's an excellent point. Uh, uh, excellent question. So, what did they learn? So, this was they didn't taste it until they noticed the flies coming to it. At least according to the history of all this. So, Indian physicians noticed that the urine from these people that were losing weight so quickly they were wasting away, and the idea was almost that the urine that the the body was melting. Like, because they would just waste away and all their fat was going away, their muscle, their bone, they just became, uh, you know, terribly scrawny. And the idea was that the body was leaking this out into the urine. And that's where the term diabetes comes from. It just is reflective of the polyuria or the excessive urine production. So these early physician scientists noted that the urine from these people that were wasting away, it uh, attracted a lot of flies. And, and dogs would come and lick it up. And so then one physician, more recent than that, uh, would tasted it and then noticed a subtle flavor. Now, interestingly, glucose itself is not overly sweet. Of course, it's fructose that's sweet. Yeah, glucose alone is not particularly sweet. But nevertheless, there would have been enough there to give it a decided um, taste difference. Okay. Now, the reason that's important, I believe, to modern medicine is that that observation put all of diabetes, type 1 and type 2, into one family of glucose. These became glucose diseases. They were diseases of excess glucose, type 1 and type 2. Now, unfortunately, over time, that perspective, I believe, has become less and less uh, forgivable. And we need, it's time to change because those diseases are, in fact, opposites. Type 1 diabetes is a disease of uh, deficient insulin, and then type 2 diabetes is a disease of too much insulin. It's just not working well, so insulin resistance. The fact that they both have di a glucose, elevated glucose levels in common, I would say is, a secondary, um, uh, is of secondary importance. The reason I emphasize this is that if we can look at type 2 diabetes as an insulin disease rather than a glu glucose disease, two things that are very important happen. One, we stop looking at glucose as the key marker of the disease. And when we do that, we can detect the type 2 diabetes much earlier. In fact, there are studies known that if you're tracking the patient, looking at their glucose and their insulin, insulin starts to climb decades before the glucose does. And so by waiting until the glucose climbs, then we detect it far later than we needed to. If we were looking at the insulin, we would have detected it much, much earlier. So that's one important point if we shift the paradigm and look at insulin. Second, I would argue we treat it significantly better. If we acknowledge that in insulin resistance, insulin is elevated and then glucose is normal, and then even in type 2 diabetes when insulin is still elevated and glucose is now elevated, if we try to just look at it, if we look at it only as a glucose disease, we just say whatever we got to do to push the glucose down, we're going to do it. Even if that means bumping the insulin up, insulin up even higher than it was before. And that it drives more insulin resistant, right? Well, that's right. It makes you more insulin resistant, makes them gain weight. It makes them die uh, more from cancer, die more from heart disease. All of this is published data. So their risk of cancer and heart disease mortality is two to three times more than it would otherwise be. So if we just look at it as trying to push the glucose down, regardless of what we do to insulin, that's a wrong way of looking at it. In contrast, if we say this is a disease of too much insulin, what can we do to lower the insulin? Then I would argue that logically leads to a lifestyle change of just let's cut the carbs. If rather than give you drugs that push the glucose out into the urine, rather than give the person drugs that blocks uh, glucose digestion or starch digestion in the intestines, let's just put less glucose into the body 
that will help the glucose come down. It'll help the insulin come down. And now we're really addressing the problem. So if we look at it as an insulin disease, we detect it sooner. We can lower the insulin, which starts to resolve not only the diabetes, but then the countless other pathologies that come from insulin resistance, like PCOS, one you mentioned earlier, and many, many others. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for explaining it like that. I, had, I hadn't heard it talked about that way and I loved it. Okay, so um, when did you transition from thinking of ketones as metabolic garbage and what do our listeners need to understand about this new viewpoint you have about ketones? Yeah, yeah, so I did have to grow through that uh, just like most I would, I would believe. I uh, was taught in my nutritional biochemistry class that ketone was quote-unquote metabolic garbage, that it was it. nothing. Um, uh, and that it was only something to be viewed as in, in a pathological setting. In other words, if you detect ketones as dangerous, and that becomes relevant in the context of an untreated type 1 diabetic. If the type 1 diabetic is deliberately, say, underdosing their insulin in order to stay thin, which works extremely well, that's a disorder called diabulimia. The person will deliberately skip their insulin injections to stay skinny, and they do. Um, but they have massive hyperglycemia and massive ketoacidosis that kills them, but they look great in their coffin. They just the body size they want to be, but they die young. Um, nevertheless, in that case, ketones are decidedly a, a warning sign. In the rest of us that are not type 1 diabetics, or even in the type 1 diabetic who is just giving insulin based on what the glucose demands are, what the glucose demands in the blood, in that case, a person can be in a mildly elevated state of having ketones, which we call ketosis, not ketoacidosis. And the difference is ketones are elevated, but not to the point that it affects pH in the blood. So the acid-base balance stays perfectly normal. But I'm, I'm, I've shifted the topic a little. So metabolic garbage, <clears throat> when I started, that's what it was once considered. When I started to try to find the best studies published to most effectively lower insulin, I had to start using search terms like ketogenic diet to find some of the relevant research. But it, so I came to the ketone because of my appreciation for insulin. And you aren't making ketones unless insulin is elevated. Or in other words, if insulin is down sufficiently for a long period of time, the body becomes ketogenic. It starts making ketones from all the fat that it's burning. Just like I talked about earlier, the body's so able to burn fat that it burns enough, in fact, more than it needs, arguably, and starts turning some of the fat into ketones. I, so again, I had to start using those terms um, because it allowed me to find more human research. So I would go to online databases like PubMed or Google Scholar and I would have to put in quotes, ketogenic diet, and then whatever the health outcome I was looking for, ketogenic diet, hypertension, ketogenic diet, polycystic ovarian syndrome, or, or whatever the situation was. And then that, 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 that enabled me to find better studies, more relevant um, for what I wanted in, in the teaching material that I was preparing at, you know, in whatever topic I was working on. Now, importantly, as if some listeners start doing that, my only note of caution is be careful in the animal studies that we use and rely on. Many animal studies that put the animals onto a ketogenic diet have almost all of the fat coming from corn oil or soybean oil, and that is not a good way to do it. Earlier, you'd said low-carb healthy fat. I agree. By healthy, I define healthy as natural fat, which is a fat that comes from an animal or the flesh of a fruit. 
These are fats that we would have been eating since time immemorial as a species. And those, fat, those, those fruits would be coconut, avocado, olive, um, and then again, any animal fat. So studies that are uh, putting an animal into a ketogenic diet, make sure that it is a well-formulated version of it. So the, in other words, the fat is not coming from one of those industrial seed oils. Dr. Bregman, thank you so much. Um, two last questions. Yep. If a person feels, let's say they're starting off in this world and they're insulin resistant, they're type two diabetic, they're struggling with health and they, they want to improve their health, they want to feel better. What is one first step you might suggest? Yeah. Yeah. I would say change breakfast and start tomorrow. Uh, it, it, is, it is, I think, particularly tragic in our diet uh, in most of the world at this point, as I've traveled the world uh, and giving, giving talks about insulin resistance, everywhere that eats breakfast, everywhere, they start breakfast almost without exception um, with high sugar, high starch foods. I think that is terrible. Insulin has finally come down overnight. You know, we eat dinner, um, even if it's a crappy dinner, uh, high sugar, high fat, high starch, you know, low protein as so many processed foods are these days. Um, even still in that terrible dinner, insulin has finally come down after throughout the night as we've been sleeping. And so the person wakes up and insulin is a little low in, in the healthy person who's metabolically flexible. They might even be in a hint of ketosis at that point. Um, uh, but even if they aren't, uh, Insulin has worked hard all night uh, to clear the glucose and to come down and how terrible that we just shoot it through the roof for breakfast and we do it again two hours later. We do it again two hours later because they're always trying to fill up that little sugar burning tank for the rest of the day because that's what they're burning. The body is in a bit of a fat burning stage when they wake up. Let it keep going. Change breakfast tomorrow. You don't have to, I'm not saying skip it if the person feels like they need to, although that is a very viable option. Just drink a cup of tea or something similar. But if they're going to eat breakfast because they need something in their stomach, although they don't, um, but if they felt like they needed it, focus on protein and fat. Those are the two essential macronutrients for humans anyway, and they're the ones with the least or mild effect on insulin. And so you can keep the body in that fat burning stage that it's worked so hard to get to overnight. So change breakfast, start tomorrow. I love that. Thank you so much for everything you shared. Where can people find out more about you? Also, you mentioned like a study that's coming out or around keto, I believe. Where yeah. can they hear you speak? Where, where, where can they find out everything about you? Yeah, thank you. Uh, this, uh, we do have papers being published all the time. We're just about to submit for review a paper that we have data from individual fat cells um, data from mice and humans that if the if they if the fat cells are exposed to ketones, the metabolic rate in the fat cell goes up about two or three times. So the actual metabolism within the fat cell itself, the metabolic rate is significantly higher. And this could explain part of what we see um, from the whole body level that when people are in ketosis, their metabolic rate is about 100 to 300 calories higher than when they're not in ketosis. So that's a very real metabolic advantage to being in Heck ketosis. Yeah. Yeah. Like being able to eat more. I'm all about that. Yes, exactly. Right. And, and then where can they find me? Um, I am, I'm pretty active on social media. It's only ever science. It's never me um, or, or about me. I, I'm too, I, I have too many, I'm, I'm one of 13 kids. The idea of having that much attention is unsettling for me. So I'm an I don't only like child. These. I'm the opposite. I got you. I need <laughs> all the validation and you're yeah. a smart person. This is perfect. 
<laughs> yeah, you're the, yeah, you and I would get along great. Yeah. yeah. Um, because I don't want the attention. You can have all of it. Um, so uh, I, I, on, on uh, Instagram and uh, Twitter, I just share studies from time to time, a couple times a week. And that's Ben Bickman, PhD. And then I have a public profile page on Facebook and someone can find me there. Just uh, Benjamin Bickman. And that's B-I-C-K-M-A-N. Um, no C, just B-I-K. No C. Did I spell no C. Yeah, we're going to edit that out. You're going to edit that. Byron, yeah. edit that out. <laughs> B-I-K-M-A-N. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's B-E-N and then Bickman is B-I-K-M-A-N. No C. Don't insult my Jewish ancestors by slipping a C in there. Sorry that's about that. B-I-K. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> um, and then uh, I have a book coming out in July. Yes. And anyone who is um, curious about what we talked about, I go into it in a great uh, amount of detail. And that is called Why We Get Sick. And the general premise of the book why we get sick is that insulin resistance uh, is relevant to every chronic disease, non-infectious chronic disease. And we just scratched the surface now. Um, and then, and so, and what is insulin resistance? So why does it matter? What is it? And then what to do about it? That's the kind of three pillars of the book. Again, it comes out in July. It's available for pre-order anywhere books are sold. Is it available for pre-order now? It sure is. Okay, great. We're going to put a link for that for sure. Um, so tell us the name of the book one more time. Why yep. we get sick? Why we get sick. That sounds fascinating. I can't wait to read it. Okay. So yeah. since you said that, I'm going to talk about my book, which yes. is Life in the Fasting Lane that I co-authored with Dr. Jason Fong and Megan Ramos. And the reason I'm saying it is Dr. Bickman is one of the five people we sent the early book to and uh, exposed ourselves and hoped they would say nice things. And he would <laughs> So we really appreciate that so much. Like, I'm, I'm so grateful for that. Thank you for reading it. Thank you for sending us a quote. Um, it, it was a great book. It really was. Um, I meant, I meant what I said. It is a fun mix of science and, um, and not, not anecdote, but just experience that, that combination of the experience of people doing this with the scientific perspective, putting it in context, it does make for a pretty fun read. Thank you so much. You know, when I started reading books, like I, I have to just be honest with you, I am not as smart as some people. I'm not as smart as Dr. Jason Fong. I'm not as smart as Megan Ramos. And I've learned 30 minutes now. I'm not as smart as you. I kept up with about 80% of what you said, but I got to go back and listen to it again. So I actually understand all of it. So the purpose of life in the fasting lane, the book was to say, here are these two incredibly smart people. And here is this regular girl who has yeah. failed in every way. Is just going to tell you like net it out. Like she's your best How to stop failing future. metabolically. That's it. That's it. Thank you so much for being on our podcast, Dr. Beckman. We so appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. It was absolute pleasure. Really, Eve, thanks for reaching out. Thanks for the invitation. Thank you. Guys, thank you so much for tuning in to the Life in the Fasting Lane podcast. Till next time, to your health and hotness.